Welcome to the Salad Days Podcast, featuring interviews with your favorite artists talking about their musical origins and humble artistic beginnings. Join me, Dave Ulrich, as we travel back to the early days and hang out for a bit. Our journey this week features our special guest, Jose Miguel Contreras, the brains and heart of Baidabon Ray. Now, this was a great conversation uh, because of the familiarity history that Jose and I have together uh, doing many things over the past I don't know how many years, but I just want to say that uh, uh, the comfort level is uh, great. It's really great. To, you can just tell that Jose's in his uh, in his studio space. You can even hear him uh, making a coffee at one point. So I think uh, I think it's just great that uh, the stories were just flowing really nice. So, um, and I want to point out that off the top, there's a, a joke about lasagna, and I was going to explain that that was uh, a reference to uh, Jose appearing on another podcast called Toronto Mike, and uh, they give. Uh, everyone lasagna among other things on that on that uh show and uh although i didn't give jose a lasagna uh, i think uh we did uh, both give each other a lot of laughs so i hope you enjoy it here it is jose contreras i didn't watch the tutorial so i don't get extra credits (laughs) exactly (laughs) I loved it. And, uh, you know, I, that has uh, led me to uh, a new uh, awareness of the power of lasagna. <laughs> That's, good. That's good. Which is that if, if you wanted to overthrow a revolution, you don't yeah. need to negotiate with them. Just give them lasagna. <laughs> because after people eat lasagna, they don't want to do anything. Oh yeah, especially yep. if it's like a real lasagna with like the bechamel and the meat. And yeah, like that. oh yeah, that's right. it. They ha- the, everyone's ambitions are over once they've had like a real slice of lasagna. They'd be like, I, yeah, I, no. Seriously, I think that you could take like a, yeah, it was hilarious. Anyways, yeah, my band ate that lasagna all week long. Oh, I was just gonna say you had some interesting observation about your your kids and stuff too. As I relate that to lasagna, it's so funny because I wish my kids would eat lasagna. And we've had some good ones, like the, the ones you described. We've not had the, uh, oh, whatever the, the name is there. But uh, oh, you the, know. the bechamel so is that when you get a real lasagna and it's got that heavy sauce. Yes, the heavy sauce. Yes, in it, in it, right? You don't necessarily taste it, but you can just tell that, like, aside from the cheese and the noodles and the meat, um, you're also having this creamy flour sauce. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Okay, so so okay, well, let's 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 start in. We'll start in, okay? And uh, so uh, so whenever uh, I do these conversations, Jose, the first thing that I uh, ask is or sort of comment on some element of our shared history, mutual things that we've done together. Oh, and yeah. because our history goes so far back, in my mind, it's almost like the very beginning of the inbreds is almost the exact same, roughly same era as the very beginning of Bite of Right, and we did shows together and all this kind of fun stuff over the years. But the the thing that came to mind for some reason when I think of you is this uh, this time where I was out of music uh, and I was had my first kind of um, day job in Toronto and I was going to a meeting in my classic jumpsuit that I would have my shiny shoes and uh, you know blue shirt and I'm going to this meeting up on Bloor and this cab, the way I remember it is this cab comes by and the windows open and the guy in it jumps out. And says, Dave, and it was you. And you were, you were like, I don't know where you were going. I don't know if I got that story right, but I just remember you came out. It was like my two worlds collided, you know, because I had my little, my little book and uh, you probably had some guitar strings or something. Do you remember that day? I don't. <laughs> That's funny. I don't, yeah. I don't no, remember it's that so day. Funny. Also, you came out, you, you were so excited, you. so excited. Well, I mean, listen, even just hearing you, like when your microphone turned on today and you, and I heard half a word. And I just heard like a millisecond of the timbre of your voice. I got excited because yeah. I, I was like, I think like I could be like, you know, like 110 floating <laughs> in space. And if someone played me that little snippet, I would be like, that's Dave. <laughs> right. Like yeah. I would recognize your voice, you know, even like a millisecond, like name that Beatles song, you know, like I would recognize your voice. And so I, 
but I don't remember that day. <laughs> I uh, I guess I don't remember much. No, it was it was just like uh, I by forgot the way, that you lived in Toronto too. And well, now, that's the now thing I, I remember that you did. Yes, I do remember. Yeah, like yeah, because I kind of just moved here and I had just gotten out of you know the, the inbreds was maybe two years before that when we actually stopped playing, but uh, it was just the way that you know. Uh, yeah, like it's like two worlds colliding. But and by the way, like I said, that comment about the voices, uh, you know, they say that about classic rock radio, right? That you have to be able to figure the song out within three seconds. That defines mm. a classic rock song. So maybe that's what uh, voices are like sometimes. I don't know. Mm. Okay, classic so anyway, rock uh, radio has gotten really weird, right? Well, like, like all of a sudden you're listening to classic rock and you hear like Depeche Mode. I'm like, yes. Listen, I was really into Depeche Mode in high school, but like, is it really? Do I really like in Q107? I heard an amazing mix the other day. Actually, it was like, it was like the it was a terrible mix. It was like it was a dem- demonstrative of like whatever demographic degeneration we have, where it was like something like Guns and Roses, and then Depeche Mode, and I forget what what the triple punch was. It was something amazing that was like whoa, like Len, something like that. It was like Steal My Sunshine. I'm like. What the hell happened to? <laughs> yeah, that's when you know you've yeah you've like you you know you've yeah the mighty Q for sure. Well, the whole uh, uh, I've definitely had that same experience. Is it is it um what's the is it Depeche Mode the song about uh, not disposable Jesus but uh, yes song yes yeah personal yeah, Jesus you, yeah personal Jesus yes yes yeah um okay so let's uh, that was just a uh, in, in, kind of like a little intro but uh, just to set up where we are. Uh, uh, tell us uh, where you're joining from today and uh, remind remind me where you grew up. Um, I'm sitting in my garage, which is really my studio. But whenever anyone gets too excited about the studio, I'm like, it's a garage. Um, yeah. <laughs> bring them down. Uh, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sitting on a, on a sofa in my, in my studio. Uh, and I grew up mostly in Thornhill, Ontario, just outside of Toronto. I, I was there from grade two, grade one, no, grade two on. Uh, I was born in Chile in South America, and I moved to Honduras when I was four because of a military coup in Chile. So I was a political refugee in Honduras. And then when they kicked us out of Honduras, the U.S. government, we came to Canada. Thank you. For thank all you, your, thank you, yeah, uh, Pierre Elliott Trudeau, for all your complicated, uh, for all the complex, uh, you know, uh, whatever the word is, uh, legacy. At least he let the Chilean um, political refugees in. Because if we'd gone back to Chile, my parents for sure would have been arrested. Yeah, and they hadn't done anything except vote. Like seriously, you know, it's sort of like if all like the scariest people decided that anyone who didn't vote for them were criminals. Man, there would be a lot of lot of outspoken people. My dad was pretty outspoken, so was my mom. But um, And you all came together in one shot when you came October, together, right? October 20th, 1974. Okay, there you go. Well, um, the goal, uh, ultimate goal of this conversation is I, I like to get at the how and the why uh, you started playing music. Mm-hmm. And so to do that, like to just ask you questions about when you know when you were younger, maybe in high school, maybe after you've, um, maybe in Thornhill. Uh, mm-hmm. And so this, I have this usual question. I'm, I might tweak it a little bit here. I'm not really sure, but I, I try to get at. Uh, we were just before we started, we were talking a little bit about food, and so I, I try to say that. Just, I'm just trying to get at what the the spirit was in your your household when you're maybe in high school or even like earlier than that. And so you're, it's a Friday or Saturday night and you're, you're in your house and there's something cooking or something in the stove or something in the oven. And you, 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 you can smell it and you can ha- have fond memories of it. Um, and I've since learned that some people don't always have fond memories of Friday night cooking in their house. So if it's not that, uh, maybe there is uh, something on TV or just kind of like a fond memory of that time to kind of just, just set the stage here. That's a really sweet uh, prompt, Dave, um, and it really took me back to my house in Thornhill. We had a bungalow, and, you know, my, my parents' marriage wasn't entirely happy, and and so therefore we, and it ended in the late 80s, so I don't really always think back, like, in that way, so it's a really amazing question. 
Um, there was tons of music in my house always growing up. And the very first music I heard was Chilean folk music, which to this day is just so powerful. New, nueva canción, new song from the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. Was so powerful and so fucking cool. Uh, uh, you know, I actually just, the last record I ordered on Discogs was a Victor Jara record, um, which is just so progressive and fresh and new and, you know, it's spiritual, it's political, it's, it's, uh, subversive. It's also like got that it's for everyone vibe, like Bob Marley, hopeful energy, you know, uh, um, it's anti-corporate and it's um, populist too. Like everyone loved Victor Jara, which is why during the military coup, they killed him. Like imagine like there was, a, you know what I mean? Where like the, uh, the kind of artists that you go after. So yeah. that's, that's the vibe I get on a Friday night, you know, like um, my dad loved music and he would always crank music and, my mom, my parents being Latin American and being sort of middle class, upper middle class, meant that in Chile, they didn't cook. My mom would have had cooks her ho- oh, whole yeah. life. And she was a doctor yeah. too. So she didn't start cooking until she came to Canada as an immigrant, as a, wow. as a refugee, right? She'd never yeah. cooked before. She had three kids. But I just all of a sudden can remember her like grabbing a roast from the Thornhill farmer's market and cooking it up and i guess back then i used to eat pork and stuff but you'd get those like rolled pork roasts and i'm yeah imagining some like brahms cranked on the stereo or you know like as we got older and cds came out like you know i my first cd was um jean-michel jarre oxygen you know that first record so like that kind of cranked up or some of that 80 synth stuff like Kitaro. <laughs> Kitaro. You know, like sort of ambient, sort of like epic Olympics type music. And, um, uh, and are, are we talking vinyl too? Would that, would it, would it be, would it be when you say cranked? You're cranking vinyl? Uh, well, those ones specifically were CDs. And remember, CDs were better, right? At that okay, point. Right, like, right, right, right. You look at the back, it's like ADD or DDD was the yeah, that's ultimate. Right, that's right. That meant like recorded digital. Mixed digitally, mastered digitally. And then, uh, you know, when you had a record that was AAD, you could hear hiss, and that meant that it sucked. But we de- definitely had lots of vinyl, like tons. I-, I had a friend in high school who was a DJ, like at parties, and he had money. And you remember records were expensive, right? So, like, how many records yeah. would you actually buy a year? You know, not that many. But he bought everything. And uh, Thornhill was very Anglo Anglophile, so he had all the new wave singles. He had all the new wave records and 12 inches and so through him i heard everything and he would lend me records that i would take me a long time to get into but um yeah so definitely lots of records like like that that new order single was huge blue monday bauhaus now that makes me want to share a story of my own which is the um so when i was the uh, I've definitely been entrepreneurial, I think, my whole life, and music is one element of that. But uh, when I was in high school, we had this idea to start a DJ service. And so it was my three, two of my friends, Carrie and Jim and Dave. So we called the service KDJ. <laughs> and, yeah, and we had, we bought a bunch of gear and we would go and do the big first move was doing my public school. I remember meeting with the principal. We were in grade nine. I think we'd probably just left the school, or I just left the school. So we're going back. A year later, thinking we're all grown up, you know, but we're one year removed from the school. So we go in and meet with the principal. He let us DJ the Christmas dance, whatever. Then we went on to do some high schools, but we were pretty, we were pretty green musically, all three of us. And we were pretty much raised on a classic rock diet in Oshawa. And I can remember the first time we got to do an actual, I would call it a legit high school dance. You know, we're playing, you know, um, the stuff of the day, like literally Brian Adams. Uh, I was going to say Brian Adams. That was the first yeah. thing I was going to say. You know, yeah. Brian Adams, but, but maybe some, maybe some, <laughs> uh, we had 12 inch, we had, it was vinyl too. So we had, we did have some 12 inch remixes of something, maybe like almost, you know, like Durant close Durant. to alternative, but pretty much just rock. And that, that was an Oshawa thing. But I remember this one time somebody came up and asked me about a band called the Smith. And I said, who are they? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
What year would this so, have been? Uh, you know, uh, this would be, um, okay, let's think. So they're talking like 85, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I just well, remember that KDJ. Yeah. KDJ. I um, <laughs> You know, I'm an immigrant, so I'm always spaced out. I, I I think that's actually I'm not mean that depreciatively. I just like um, I remember meeting in the '90s like these like guys that were really into wings. They were from Argentina. <laughs> okay, yeah. And I remember thinking, Jesus, these guys are so they're so fun, but they're so spaced out. They have no idea what's cool or not cool. They're like really wanted to listen to a live Wings album at a party. Wow. At, at that moment when like Paul McCartney couldn't have been less cool. You know what I mean? Yes. And uh, yes, and yes. then I realized as the years go by, that's me. You know, like in the early 2000s when everyone was getting electro dance, right, would have been the peak of my obsession with the White Album, you know, that had, I, that had gripped me in the 80s. You know, like I'm just not cool I'm, or I'm only cool by accident. And so I'm, I am like with you on that whole tip of like play the Smiths. And you not know who they are. Like, I've always been out of it. Like, you know, people, whatever's popular, you can rest assured I, I'm not into it yet and it's going to take me 15 years to figure it out. Um, although I had, because I grew up in Thornhill, which was very Anglo, so super Anglo, um, all the new wave bands were huge in my high school. And there were all the coolest uh, girls in my school who were like, uh, like all the new wave girls in my school that I was just drawn to, um, uh, and my group of friends, uh, uh, they loved the Smiths. So that's how I always knew the Smiths. Same thing in my high school. It was, it was the, all the good looking, cool people were into new order and, you know, me and my buddies were listening to Van Halen, right? So Van Whalen. Yeah. Yeah. Van Whalen. Yeah. We were out, out, of step, out, out of touch, whatever. Well, but, there was okay, lots so, of rockers in my school too. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, so I mean, <laughs> um, now just and just so just to circle back again on the house, you were only child, is that right? No, I'm the youngest of three. Yeah, youngest of three. Okay, three. okay. So you're also there's five of you in the house. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so that okay. So one theme there uh, that I've noticed is a, a lot of people that I've talked to are actually the last um, of I'm the last of seven kids. So you're the last Whoa. of three. Um, I didn't know you when, were. A- yeah, it's a seventh, huge, huge family, but but one way that son. relates. Sorry, you're the seventh son. Seventh son, exactly. Yeah, um, but the you know as as that relates sometimes to music and influence, it's it's interesting how there could be whether it's a whether it's again a, a like a CD or a vinyl line around the house or the magazines that your siblings read or the an instrument. So as it gets into actual instruments. Uh, what was the thing in your house that you were able to get access to? Was it a keyboard, a guitar, and, and how did it get there? Yeah, my dad, for there was a broken guitar. I wrote a Brian Adams song on it just for fun when I was really little. Uh, just because my friends were like talking about a Brian Adams song, and I was like, it's not that great a song. I was like, imagine how obnoxious I was already when I was like eleven. I <laughs> I don't I don't have a some people, like, I think I come across as more confident than I am. It's more that, I don't know what my manner, you know, my manner maybe comes across. But at that point, I was like, it's not that hard. To, so I wrote a, a Brian Adams song for them on a broken guitar. It was called Where Are You Tonight? Uh, I, can hear, I can hear Tina doing the I, backup on that one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sing you a bit of it. It goes, <laughs> everybody's having fun tonight. All the birds are flying. You're not with me. That's not right. I am, whatever, sit here dying. Where are you tonight? <laughs> Have a cool rip. It's a pretty good song, actually. Cut, cut to your friends' faces giving you the, the, the blank stare or, or. Where are you tonight? <laughs> oh, they were impressed. But anyways, I, I had no emotional attachment to that moment. My, I, somewhere, I think like in grade eight, I loved, I loved music. What I used to do is that I used to record when I was really little backing tracks onto my cassette player. It wasn't even a ghetto blaster because it only had one speaker. I'd record like the backing tracks to Beatles songs, like with me banging on magazines and mouthing the bass lines and stuff. Yeah. And then I'd sing to them. And play another 
mouthing stuff. I don't know what, do the harmony or something like that. But like, so I was always really into playing badminton, uh, racket to guitar to, to, to records. And, um, I wanted to grow up and I thought maybe the people could see me through the stove. (laughs) (laughs) So I would like play badminton racket in front of the stove. But, um, the, um, my dad got me a Yamaha Porta Sand in like grade seven or grade eight. And it was this little brown keyboard and definitely was the first time that I sat for hours and like heard, you know, once in a while, two keyboards on a keyboard, if you hit them, go like, go like, you know, and then like you change, you change like one semitone that goes, you change another semitone, it goes, and you go again, it goes, you know, like two keys. Some of them will sound beautiful together chords, but some of them will make weird reaction. And I got into that and I realized that I could record. I had the broken cassette recorder i could record something and record something on top of it and then i learned like whatever whether it be like the intro to lucy in the sky for diamonds like lucy in the sky with diamonds and and i learned yazoo because i loved yazoo so much uh situation and uh, don't go those tunes so i learned the riffs on that keyboard and then the very first band i wanted to have at that point was like a new wave band where i wanted to be the cool keyboard player in a new wave band and okay, well, uh, yeah well i think this is you've, you've done a pretty good setup actually for for the for your your old school track so i think we'll, we'll go into that and then we'll come in and we'll talk about it so uh this song is called body shoes and uh, you reference it as being uh, an early by divine right track so again we'll talk about it after but here here is body shoes
Awesome. I'm so happy you're playing that song. And you know what? Yes. Uh, it's perfect setup because that is the Porta sound I'm using. The I was just going to say, it's, it's got the keyboards in there, right? Yes, so. and it had that built-in boom, 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 that the Porta sound came with, like where you could have an auto bass that would play like, right? And so I, and this is sort of like at some point in the 80s, I was so into the 80s, Dave, like I was such a pretend uh, fashion victim, like I wore makeup, <laughs> all that thing, right? And uh, and even though I was like this like sort of like chubby uh kid with you know i didn't hit puberty till i was like 28 so i was this chubby baby um with like um and i didn't start shaving for real till i was like 40 <laughs> seriously <laughs> right i was such a like baby child man child and uh so uh you know the image of me like with a little peach peach fuzz mustache and my bad hair and wearing makeup is pretty hilarious total fashion victim but, no, uh, you're, so, you're setting you're setting up the visual to go with this track. I was just going to throw in my two cents on the on the music itself. Like but, again, like but, this is like some cheap review, whatever. But my initial read on it is it's, it's like it's like the Beatles meets the Beastie Boys with you know, with your with your vocal on top or something. I, you know what I, I mean? I like I I uh, thank you so much. I think you you nailed it. Like at some point in the eighties, I realized that the sixties were way cooler than the eighties. Like, uh, and, uh, I had been into sixties music in my youth, but then got super into the eighties and then, oh yeah, teacher played what, you know, in school you, you see, um, apocalypse now and it had that doors tune in it. And I was like, oh, I have this record at home. My brother's got it. And this is fucking awesome. And then, so yeah, like that track, I was thinking like magical mystery tour or something when I did that track, you know? And, and I think, um, and it's my first four. It's my very first song I ever recorded. Uh, That's cool. And uh, it was so casual. We were at a cottage, and my friends were milling around while I was doing it with headphones on. Four track. I rented a four track. Got backwards guitars. It was kind of like um, 1989. You know, it's like, uh, and it does have that sort of like Beastie Boys kind of Wayne vibe, right? Like culture, like um, culture like mash. I like that you say you had to rent the four track because I remember for us, it was the same thing. The, on our, uh, the inbred CD Hilario, the very last track is farm boy, which was on a rent, kind of like the first thing we ever recorded original. And it's a four track from a, a rental from long McQuaid. And I remember just, again, it was, it was always so intimidating to go into a music store at that age because, uh, you said you peach, I probably had some version of Peach Fuzz too. They would just look at you like you're some idiot trying to get a four. You know, Why do you need a four track, kid? Get out of here. Well, you know? also like in that in that era, you'd go into a, a music store and it was like the Mullet Army, all doing like Van Halen solos. Yeah, it and really if you was. Didn't, if you didn't, you know, if you didn't have two China crashes, you were the sh you weren't a drummer. <laughs> you know, if you yeah. couldn't do like if you couldn't play like hammer-ons, you were you weren't a guitar player. Um, yeah, it, it was very, uh, like, uh, it was a, a special breed, you know. Uh, it was the end of the 80s, and it lasted into, you know, I mean, we I'm sure we both had many experiences with, like, you know, aggressive sound men uh, who, you know, like sort of the failed metal bass players, or maybe successful metal bass players. What do I know at this point? Um, the... Um the, the track itself, though, so because you, you referred to it as the first by, by Divine Right. So this is actually an interesting segue into the concept of, you know, By Divine Right, I think there's been many versions of it over the years. And I'm assuming you're playing everything on this track, right? I am, yeah. Yeah, so it's like the, the, right from square one, you know, you kind of got, it's almost, you got, we've got, we've got proof right here, you know, that the, uh, the kind of the source ha has always been you know, yourself. But I mean, when the inbreds were playing, we, you know, again, like I think we met, if not the very first version, one of the very first versions of the By Divine Right band. And we, because we, you know, we met you guys because we were touring Ontario going up and down the 401. I think we traded off shows where you came to Kingston and yeah. we came to oh, Toronto yeah. and we swapped headlining and we stayed at each other's places and all that kind of stuff. Oh yeah. Um, but, but as it relates again to, you know, to this track, when you would finish this, because I would think that uh, 1989, sounds really quite good. Uh, I'm always intrigued to say, who did you play it for? And did it make it to any, did it get out any wider than your friends uh, or your family or, you know, play, play it in the car when you're 
going up to the cottage or whatever with your parents or, <laughs> not on a song I, um, like that. You know, my, uh, it did have a little impact. Like my friends thought it was cool and it, and it, it, it had like, uh, and my friends weren't cool, but <laughs> like we weren't like the cool kids. Uh, but, uh, I thought it was pretty cool when I did it and my friends thought it was too. Um, you know, it, it's about my, it's about my friend too. Like the yeah. song, he's the character and he had these shoes called body shoes. So it's very like friend group music, you know, like, like I was saying, they were hanging around while we were there. And I had a friend who was a little bit older than me that had a show at CKLN. He's actually the guy that I would say I started by divine right with Rob Covens. And, um, he was like, you know, uh, he had like an art show on CKLN where he would play like Stephen Reich and the residents and Perubu and, and he helped me, you know, he's the first guy who told me about LL Cool J when LL Cool J was like a, you know, a, an independent guy putting out cassettes. Um, and, um, so he knew all about all of that stuff. He also bought me uh, James Brown Live at the Apollo. My friend Rob Covens had a big impact in my life. We all need our nerdy music friends. Well, that's, and, uh, that's pretty much – yeah, that's high school for me too. It was really – I wasn't a, never a sports guy, so it was really all about the music, you know? Yeah, all about it. Yeah, so yeah, it was all about the music. I remember like crying with fighting about someone – telling me that Duran Duran sucked and I'm like crying. (laughs) (laughs) I just full tears, you know, like, how can you say that? So later, later that year, like in December, I rented the four track again and I uh, recorded like another 10 or 10 songs or so. And my only goal, seriously, my only goal, I've always been a totally unambitious person. (laughs) It's a terrible trait. I have ambitions now, but in my youth, I didn't know. I didn't know my, my family was so loud and pushy. I didn't like, they would, they would argue where to go for dinner on my birthday. Like they wouldn't ask me, you know what I mean? Like, so like, so I didn't know to, to have plans, you know, I was always just get swept away in other plans, you know, even like, if there's a reason why by divine right did their thing is cause Mark was kind of driven to do something, you know? Yes. Mark Goldstein, my, my yeah. long, long standing first official drummer. Um, and I'm so grateful to him and other people. Whereas now I have actual goals, you know, like, uh, and I have had for the last, you know, 15 years after like the initial push kind of ended, that was sort of where I sort of was like, oh, I actually still want to do stuff. You know, I have ideas and, uh, but anyway, so, um, but uh, so when the reason I even made that first cassette was cause all I wanted to do was listen to something cool. And I didn't know, I, there wasn't a lot of like, sort of like lo-fi psychedelic music in 1989, right. right that I right, knew, yeah. of, that I knew about there was, but I didn't know about it. So all I wanted to do was make this tape so I could smoke a joint and walk through the forest and listen to it. That was my fucking end goal. Yeah. My yeah. end goal was just like, listen to something kind of like Sid Barrett that had like cool stuff over the left and backwards guitars over the right and kind of fruity drum fills that didn't sound anything like the eighties, like zero eighties content. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and that was my entire goal. So anyway, so I made that tape and it did kind of, and I did it for myself and I probably made like 15 copies, like 10 copies. Like my friends asked for it. It was hard to make cassette copies back in the day, right? It was like, it took forever. You had to like listen to oh, it yeah. in real time. Yeah. My friend who had the radio show had me mix it to beta. The four track. So we did a quick four track mix to a beta machine. Yeah. And then yep. with, and that he said had better audio than a DAT machine or something. And at the time I was like, you know, kind of like not a, I didn't have a lot of money. So anyways, we, we made copies of the cassette, but it did kind of spread to a friend of mine that went to school in Peterborough. And I went to visit her at one point and in her residence and a couple of the residence houses that I went to, people had my cassette. Oh, nice. They're like, feel like, 
this one dude was like, I feel like I, it's like a Beatles record I never heard of before or something, you know? And obviously that was a huge compliment at the time. And so it kind of did spread a tiny bit, but like, no, I didn't, I like Interscope wasn't calling me or anything. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, okay. So, you know, that's, and then again, record label concept, that's a good um, segue to the, the next portion of the conversation I divided into four parts. So we talk about, we're going to skip over all kinds of interesting things that you did. And we're going to talk about, we're going to try to identify that point where you're doing music with by divine right, some version of, 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 of uh, the incarnations of the band, but you, you hit this point where you say to yourself, music has become real. So the question is, is like, when, when does something happen or something switches that light, light bulb off, are on in your head that says music music is becoming real in your case i think you may have already described some scenarios that that was the point where uh you know music became so real for you that you thought that this was what you were going to do for the rest of your life like you mentioned conf you, you had a couple of words of confidence i one comment i would say about from the earliest days that we we played with you is i i would say uh that you you came across as really confident about what you wanted to do. That was always my sense right from the first bunch of times, you know, we, we met and played with you. But if you're thinking about again, like that you're getting going, was there one point where something switched and music became real for you? Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I think that the illusion of confidence is real. And I think I've confused a lot of people that way. I've read this amazing article about it once. It was an interview with uh, Ange- Angelica Houston, who used to be very insecure and then an acting coach who told her, it's like, you're tall and gorgeous. You intimidate people. When you act insecure, what you're actually doing is confusing everyone because everyone's right. inti- intimidated by you. So just pretend that you're confident because people already assume that you are. And I kind of took that personally because, and uh, I mean, I feel secure in, you know, my, in my life and stuff, but I don't always think that way. But if there's a, a real moment where it was like a personal moment because I had lots of affirmation over the years, kind of like you guys, like I, I didn't think honestly, like, like uh, when you guys made, is it Combinator? Yeah. yeah. The one that Second really record. took it over the edge, right? When you guys yes. made that, I didn't know that anyone was going to make cool records. I didn't think that any of us were going to make cool records. Now I loved Hilario. I loved Darn Foul Dog. I, ha- I still have the t-shirt. You know, I don't know if you Thank saw, you. I was, I was in exclaim like six months ago, asking me, what's your like prized possession? There's a picture of me wearing my inbreds t-shirt. Oh, that's and, cool. I didn't see that. That's awesome. Thank yeah. You. I didn't, I didn't repost about it. And, uh, uh, but, uh, cause I feel shy of getting attention, but, um, <laughs> look at me, I'm on, I'm on the paper, but, uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, I told the story about how I, like it's, it's totally hand colored. That's right. Yeah. 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 It's got a splatter. I got an, an off print. Yeah. That uh, would be our friend, uh, Jenny San Martin, who oh, did, of course. Uh, made the, the shirts famous. and, and she might've painted it or we ourselves may have uh, filled. I feel in like, the, the I feel like when I came over to your house, you had just, you were painting them right then and there. Yeah. And, with, and, with uh, the... <laughs> uh, so uh, I forget where I was going with all this, except yeah. When you guys made that record, See, because we'd seen how many cool bands had we already looked up to that had gone nowhere. Yeah. So I assumed no one was going anywhere. And so I, therefore I had no ambition. You know, I was like, why was I doing it? I have no idea. I imagine that when I was old, like 30, I would be painting and having children, like be a painter okay. somewhere, have children, you know, like I didn't assume that I'd still be like, you know, like not even an adult at 30 let alone like now still making records at 53, you know, like, and, and still don't feel like I'm done. So, <clears throat> so the Combinator did have a big impact in my life. Cause I was, and then Hayden made that record at the same time, uh, who I went to high school with, right. Paul, me right. and Paul went to high school together. So between you guys and, and him, I was like, I'm going to make a record too, <laughs> you know, I'm going to try also. And it was instantaneously, you know, and it comes down to a show that I was playing in Peterborough that I was like taking my long johns off before the show. Cause it was winter, right? Uh, winter in 96 
early 96. And uh, I was like, oh, fuck, you know, the band that just played was so fucking cute. They were adorable. Their songs were great. There was, they were all very cute. And, and, um, and everyone, they had a local scene. Everyone loved them. And I was like, oh, man, that band's so good. Everyone's going to leave when we start playing, except for like two dudes. And we're going to sell one cassette. And there's going to be another dude from the station that talks to us. And it's going to be like, we're losers, right? We're just losers. We're not cute. And, and then I thought to myself, I was like, you know, you know, when you take your long johns off where like the club keeps like the beer, the big beer tanks or whatever, <laughs> you know, right, like okay. yeah, you're yeah. like in some, you're in a closet, right? Like there's like a mop yeah. next to you. Like I'm not describing like a, the backstage. Right. And, and then I thought to myself, you know what? Fuck that. You know what? We're great. We're going to play. This is going to be the best show we ever play. And I'm going to be, everyone's going to love it. And we're going to play great. These songs are great. And you know what? That was the first show that went really great. And everyone loved it. And everyone stayed. I still know those people. That was a real, that, that's the day that you're asking me, when did I know it was real? That's the day I knew it was real. Do you still have those magic lawn johns somewhere? Jose? <laughs> no, I'm sure they've, I'm sure they disintegrated in, in a puff of smoke since then. I mean, we're talking 96. So at this point I'm still wearing clothes. My mom bought me 10 years earlier, you know, like some, some during the, during what a, what a, what a, what a privilege to, you know, grow up in the nineties, be, be in my twenties in the nineties where standards were truly lower, you know, like you could have a great sofa you found in the garbage and no one would bug you about it. Yeah. You know, like, so no, I didn't no, Yeah. No, those long johns in the nineties, I just wore the clothes my mom had bought me in high school or whatever I found along the way. And then, and then slowly it all disintegrated to the point where, you know, I think in my early thirties, I realized I had to go and buy underwear. Because <laughs> uh, I just didn't wear underwear for like five years, and then into my thirties, I realized I needed a comb. And uh, and so no, but that, that is that is though a good uh, becoming real music becoming real story because it's kind of like like I I, I I use it as a concept to say you know where you know things kind of the the pendulum switches or whatever. But I you know it can be many obviously many points you know in your in your career and you know doing music and because you know. Uh, we came up at the same time. There's a bunch of things, you know, that we, other than not even just all the playing at the beginning, but getting a chance to uh, have interactions with and shenanigans with record labels and all that kind of stuff. And then all the, you know, we, we kind of ended it in the nineties and, and, you know, some of your greatest influence uh, I think probably was going into the zeros and the tens. Oh yeah. I, I, and at this point you guys were already fully realized 96, you guys were fully realized band. And we were not, you know, it took, this is the beginning of me figuring it out. Whereas, I mean, you guys are realized in 92 or 93 or whatever, that first cassette, it sounds, it's already very clear artistically. Whereas like, I'm still singing weird. I'm still singing weird on, in 97. I'm still kind of got a funny voice. Like I'm still not just being myself, you know, and. To, to me, it's interesting to go through some of your records and, and see, because again, because I know the, like, again, the very earliest versions when we would, when we were playing together at the Toucan or whatever in Kingston and some, some of your, you know, mid period records that you actually had, you know, you had, that's one thing, again, we had in common was videos on much music and, mm-hmm. um, and some, again, a lot of that was a little bit later than us for you, but it's the idea that, you know, you, some of your records, you know, you really go into the 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 rock you know what i mean and then of course yeah. there's the fact that you have you know arguably you know a version of a band that had all these you know all these different people on stage from different bands and that you know your influence on that as, as it relates to the the early zeros scene in toronto and and kind of the, the rebirth because one of the things that uh, uh people i've talked to there's this uh, kind of uh there was this time you know as you know very well that at the end of the 90s the canadian music thing really changed when much music kind of petered out uh, mm-hmm. and, you know, sort of pre-file sharing. But you, you kind of went, you steamrolled right through that into the zeros. And, and again, I think had your greatest influence at that time. And you're still going today. But what do you remember about that time, particularly the, that bridging that gap between like the late 90s and going mm. into the early zeros? It was, um, well, it's, it's like sort of like, it was confusing actually because um, 
uh, yeah, it was five minutes before there were actually famous people. Yes. And, uh, yes. uh, and so people thought I was famous. Right. Right. Uh, and, and, uh, treated me that way. And it was fucked for me because I'm actually kind of shy and quiet. You know what I mean? And, uh, so I, and I'd also been in playing music for like 10 years at that point or like eight. So, uh, all of a sudden people I knew were treating me very differently. Um, people that had ignored me were suddenly my best friends. All of a sudden everyone's trying to touch me, you know? Um, and, uh, just cause I had a song on the, on the TV and, like I was making a record with uh, Andy McGoffin in London. Yep. And uh, and people would be like, "Oh, what are you up to?" I'd be like, "Oh, I'm making a record in London." And everyone assumed they I meant England. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I'd be like, "What?" I'm like, I'm like taking the Greyhound to London, Ontario, with my tapes on my lap. You know what I mean? Like, I don't know what. Everyone just had this crazy assumption. So, anyways, yeah, no, I was I was just working hard. You know, I I. Uh, um, that was it. And, uh, I have a interesting memory of when I, cause then, I, and then, you know, I, I had some business issues in the early two thousands that I'm actually not allowed to talk about. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, you right. Do like a non-disclosure, whatever. Yes. Yes. Um, but it basically kind of paralyzed what I could do, um, financially. And, uh, when that happened, it coincided with someone asking me to produce their record, which I'd never really considered doing. And then that record did really well right away, which all of a sudden I had an income and, and stuff happening. And then I got married and had my first uh, son, my first child. And so for the first time, there was like three or four years with no activity. And during that time is the rise of Zunier. Yeah, yeah. And the rise of the internet. And it yeah. was really freaky because the By Divine Right did not exist. By Divine Right just did not exist. There was nothing on the internet about By Divine Right. And then all my friends were on Zunier. And, and because every, all that work that I'd done happened like just right before the internet happened. Um, it was really a really confusing time. But then when I made that record in 2009, 2010, then all of a sudden I was back on the internet. I was in the, on the internet all of a sudden and all these people came right back. And th that first generation of people of, of 20 year old, like the, the people who were like 20 in 2010 knew everything. They had just researched, they had read everything. They, they, they're the people that knew fella cootie and the banana splits and shown a knife right. and, and mud honey and Xavier Cougat. They, you know what I mean? Like the first file sharing generations, they knew everything about music. People would come up and be like, Jose Miguel Contreras, I've done you. How are you? I know all about you. You know, uh, anyways, yeah, I think I'm rambling. You know, well, one thing in terms of, again, I'm just, you know, shared, shared experience between our two bands is the, you know, the fact that we both, we both had the experience of doing the, uh, big shows with the tragically hip, mm. and I, I believe so. I I think that we I may have seen you, and I was also I was going to reference tour bus. It was the one and only time we we were ever on a tour bus was on the um, roadside attraction tour. And I, my memory is of maybe did we perhaps see you open for the hip in Halifax in the late nineties? Am I memory? Am I remembering that right? Or is that uh, we did? What, what was no. your what was your era with them? Yeah, ninety nine. It was right. Uh, Phantom power. And, uh, what, a what a privilege, eh? Like I, I, um, uh, what a wonderful experience that was. And, um, yeah, that was 99. Uh, and we did play Halifax maybe twice at the Enormo Dome. I just have this memory of seeing you in front, maybe in front of your bus in the, you know, the sort of loading zone of the, the hockey rink there in, in Halifax. <laughs> I think uh, I was, yeah, I think I was sick that night. I think I was like, had a fever and went to bed after the show in the bus. It's a funny thing about um, tour buses, you know, you would think, you would really think that it's kind of a, 
better than being stuck in a van or something like that or a car. But there, uh, my again, I, I have limited experience, but it was the the idea that even though you could kind of walk around, you, particularly on a really long trip, you were still trapped more or less. It was like almost like worse to be able to walk around just a little bit. It's like you know uh, that was sort of, and then just all the rules around, you know, you you know you. You don't, uh, no number two, right? You know, all that kind of stuff, right? And then, and then there's like sort of territorial parts, right? So there's like the back, maybe somebody always is in there with the video or whatever and somebody else. And then like sleeping is kind of not as comfortable as you might think it might be possible. That was my yeah, experience. You, I don't know what you, that, what you, you can't thought. stop. You can't stop whenever you want. That's the, that was the worst. It'd be like, wait a minute, I'm paying like how much, how many thousands of dollars a day for this? And I can't be like, Hey, can we stop here? No. You can't turn, you can't turn right. You have to go straight to where you're going. And, you know, it was also the first time we made a lot of money. Yeah. And it seemed ridiculous. Like at that point I owned one guitar, one guitar, not even a second electric or like a real, like second electric that I would play at shows or an acoustic, you know, and here we are making like a hundred thousand dollars. And at the end of it, I, I made, you know, like three. Yeah, or not not, not, e- left, not even yeah. per diems. I couldn't even get a guitar, or yeah. no one would even set aside five thousand dollars to make a record. Yeah, that's why the next record, I'm like taking the bus to London to work with Andy in his kitchen. <laughs> um, uh, so my, I have mixed feelings about that that tour bus. I also think that like you know, like we were like, no, 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 we're we're not going to take a tour bus. We're going to drive our van. In fact, we're going to buy a van or or get a van with this money and buy ourselves some gear and make another record. And uh, uh, the, our, our, the hips management, uh, wouldn't allow that. They insisted that we take a, a bus and, you know, after the tour, it was a good call. Yeah. I'm not sure we yeah. would have been able to make that tour with all the shows and the press. There was so much press. It was like, you know, four interviews a day kind of thing constantly. Uh, and, um, that we couldn't have we couldn't have pulled that tour off if we had to drive. And so I, I believe, they, was it not also winter time for you guys? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a good yeah. call on the tour bus. Yeah, that adds adds some complexity. That's for sure. Um, okay, so let's um, like in this again in this conversation, we we we, we move quick, Jose. So we we're like gonna skip, we're gonna we're gonna skip over everything. Basically, you're gonna do a whole bunch of stuff uh, in the zeros and like I said, the the, the, the teens, the twenties, the teens, the twenties up to today. So we're gonna flash forward right to now, and we're gonna talk about what you've got going on and one and one reference I'm going to make as uh, so one of the reasons I'm, I'm doing this podcast is because of uh, not just the stories from the days of the inbreds, but also a lot of the other things and you referenced Zinger, of course. And, uh, but one of them was the, the music festivals that I started in Prince Edward County. And we were lucky enough to get you out. Um, I don't know what you're at Sandbanks music festival. I don't yep. know, maybe five years ago, but one thing I did not, it's really hilarious because I realized this because of another podcast that I listened to that you were on. And you talked about um, you talked about playing at Sandbanks and how uh, you did. I think the songs was effectively off your your latest record, but nothing yeah. but. And it's so funny because maybe I was just not paying attention. I remember I had this mild thing in the back of my head after you played. I was like, it was a great set, but I was like, I don't think I recognize a single one of those songs. And then so, so I guess it was was it the case that you you literally just did a record like that, that nobody had even heard? Like I wouldn't have even heard. Oh well, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. That's I mean, that's that's awesome. That's great. Yeah, uh, yeah. I was going to cancel that show if if we didn't play new songs. And and you know, like we don't have an agent, we don't have management. Like canceling a show is tragic for BDR, you know, because yeah, we don't get a lot of amazing shows handed to us like Sandbanks, which was amazing. Twenty seven. So, so had you told me that you were doing? I don't remember that at all. No, no, no. You you asked us to do the show, and I was like, guys, we got the show. It's with Los of the Low and the Inbreds. And Great Lake Swimmers is an amazing bill. I'm like, I'm not playing this show if we don't, um, if we just, if you, we're not going to just do nine of our faves. <laughs> we have to great. play all new songs or I'm fucking canceling it. You know, like, <laughs> um, because it was that, mo- that moment, you know, like bands have those moments. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When you either have to fucking do it or it's over. You know, and uh, I couldn't have gone on there. And but also, like you know, BDR doesn't really have the kind of success, even that the Inbreds have had, or Lowest of the Low certainly, and uh, Great Lake Swimmers, in the sense that like 
or like a band like Sloan, like people don't, we don't have a set of hits that people freak out for. There is no big shiny tunes. There is no thing like that, which means that there's no like collective nostalgia at our shows, right? Like we, uh, on our last tour, we just play our new record and no one's complaining. No one's saying anything. I think I got one show. Someone was like, play five bucks. Or my mom at one point was like, aren't you going to play five bucks? (laughs) And I'm like, uh, and other than that, it's been really cool just to be, you know, like because of that, then we just get to be whoever we are in the moment. And that's what we get judged by. And I even love the the latest rounds of press that don't even mention anything from before. We're just like, you know, so anyways, yeah, that was a great show. And that really did, Sandbanks really did help us, you know. I didn't know that all of us were having such a hard time because we were on a mega roll in 2014, 15, 16 yeah. We were in a really good place. Like the BDR, we were playing really great shows, bigger shows, and people were so into it. And there were so many other bands that were into it, two young bands, uh, successful bands, who were judging us based on the the last record that we put out, Organized Accidents, that we put out uh, in 2013, 2014. We toured a lot. I made a solo record that everyone really liked. Yeah. And yeah. so we were playing festivals. At a lot of these festivals, we would play like two or three sets, BDR, do a solo set. Everyone was... The other artists were all hanging around going like, hey, this is really cool. So we felt really great. And then all of a sudden at the end of 2016, I didn't know that we were all maybe just drinking a little too much and that we were all just a little bit too too far. And then it slipped out of our hands. You know, like I, I, it slipped out of my fingers, out of all of our fingers, and which is why Sandbanks was so important that we play a new set because – we could have sat on our laurels for a little bit longer and it all gone away, you know, uh, and, uh, and it was time to reinvent ourselves a little bit. And, uh, and then it well, really fell apart in 2018. Like there was like, yeah. six months, six months where none of us talked. We would write each other. And, um, and then finally at the end of, you know, in 2019, we got it together. Well, I'm glad to hear the show was was good like that. I think that when I, as you're talking about your, you know, your, I don't know what it is, uh, th- almost probably 30 year history, you know, playing music. Like sometimes people talk about, uh, you know, uh, why a band uh, wasn't as successful as they could have been. They'll say, oh, well, they had to force singers, you know, and it's hard to market. Who am I going to market, you know? And the one thing about Bite of Unright in a similar but different concept is the idea that, I think one thing that you've had, you've, you've had this career, all these amazing records. And, uh, but I think it's hard for any version of any kind of band or solo person to, to keep a level of momentum that is either onward and upward, or at least like flatline, you know, for such a long time. Mm -hmm. But one thing that kind of helps a lot of people obviously is luck and opportunity and great Mm -hmm. songs, all that stuff. But other people have the benefit of, you know, management, consistent management or guide, some kind of like mentor, like guidance through the time. Mm -hmm. I, my sense is that, you know, over the years you've, um, I don't even know if you've had management before, but I know that, you know, you've had a lot of, a lot of good breaks. That's for sure. Uh, but I think it's, it's hard to keep, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's either two, three, four or five humans, uh, trying to, uh, get along. And it's also a, artistic partnership and it's a business partnership and keeping that going. I, I obviously totally relate to what you're saying about how, um, you know, challenging it, that can be over time. Uh, and it's, it's, it's just great to see that you, you know, like, cause this, this, this is, we are in kind of like a fresh cycle right now. Are we not? For, yeah. For bite of right? Which is great. It's been really cool. It's been, and you know, I haven't really been a very good business person. Um, over the years, I've been lucky enough to have enough money coming in to just keep it going between BDR and publishing and producing records and stuff. But like right now, I feel like we have a, our first really functioning business model, you know, in the last year uh, with our new uh, uh, label, the label that's putting out, that put out our last record, Automato, Fortune Stellar, the garage yep. rock label from Ontario. Yeah. Beautiful people. And then me and Lish, uh, sort of like either fans booking shows or us booking shows. And then suddenly it's really functioning well as a small business where we can do it. 
it can it can be done, you know, on a small level, like total small potatoes. Like we're not playing big clubs; we're playing small clubs, and yet it's working. It's maybe for the first time, like you know what I mean. We're like uh, uh, successfully, and it's it's taking me a long time to get here. It's pretty funny, right? I no, I I think that's great. I've got my analogy in my world these days is doing this this lemonade thing that I'm doing, and uh, you know we're in bottling bottling lemonade. Lemonade, yeah. Dave. And uh, one of the things about it that's kind of a, a bit analogous is that uh, it's pretty much a one-man show. That's The business model is me uh, making and selling this stuff here in Prince Edward County. I hand-bottle it myself and all that kind of stuff. And it's almost like people will say, well, why don't you hire people? Why don't you get a bigger space? Why don't you get, you know, get your thing into Sobeys or something like that, which is the equivalent of like getting a record deal. And I'm just like, no, don't want to do that. Don't want to do that. I just wanted, this is, I've got a, like a model here that works and I want to stick with it. And that's the plan. And that's, some of those are probably lessons coming out of music in general. But as you know, I mean, yeah, it's like, it, it is a business, but it's like, if you it can does. find a, a, like you can wrap your, your hands around it or your arms around it and then, and, and it, it works and you've, and uh, you know, it's, uh, everybody's kind of happy. Uh, that's, that is a good thing. I, I, I'm glad to hear that you've, you found that and you're feeling good about it. Yeah, you're so right uh, about it. You know, I didn't used to understand how record labels worked. I, I uh, It's my own fault that I was such a man-child. I didn't realize how the money all, all worked. Like, So a smaller operation that's successful and balanced can be a lot more successful than like some giant bloated machine, you know? And, and then, you know, related too is also sometimes I don't, I don't know if you're getting grants and I don't I don't really mind, but sometimes one of the things about grants that's kind of interesting is you can get them and they can give you this big chunk of dough, not on like a label, but then it then it creates all these kind of headaches down the road where you have to uh, either it's reporting or or yeah. these obligations you have to change things and that's the nice thing about again any kind of business whether it's music or anything that you can like you said you, you can just kind of keep your hands on it keep an eye on it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, grants, um, not having a huge machinery around me, don't have a ton of grants flying around, although there's lots of grant talk this year because we got a new record and some momentum going. But yeah, that, that, the one time that I did handle a grant, uh, I, um, yeah, the headache with the invoices and the receipts and all the visa statements, it was unbelievable. You know, like, just like, you know, hour, like 10 hour, like 30 hours of work, you know, it's almost, uh, not worth it. And then, um, back in the day when we used to get our grants all the time, let's face it, our management was probably just using Blue Rodeo's grant and just changing the names. Yeah. You know, yeah. and, um, uh, and, um, as soon as I started telling the truth in grants, <laughs> I didn't get them. <laughs> Tell the truth. <laughs> okay. Well, that, I think that uh, all of this, this, uh, this conversation around, you know, maybe the business side or, or finding some sort of uh, equilibrium is a nice setup to the way I like to kind of close out these conversations, which is something in, in the realm, in and around a kind of life lesson type thing. We've come pretty close to it if, if we haven't already covered some here, but you know, as you, as you think back to, um, you know, when we look at it is you imagine you're talking, Jose now is talking to uh, young Jose in Thornhill with the peach fuzz mustache. And you're going to give them, you know, that, that little guy's thinking about, you know, dreaming about music and, and the, you know, he gets a chance to meet himself uh, today. What do you, what do you think you, after everything you've been through and again, with clearly with a good model and a lot coming, coming up, which is great. And, we're going to look forward to that. But if you're looking back, you're going to tell that, that little guy something. What, what do you think you might say to them? That's such a good question, Dave. You know, I, I'm, I feel so grateful for what I've got right now. I'm sitting in my studio right now. You know, I, I was up late last night demoing a new tune. Um, and uh, I feel really lucky. I, I, don't, I, I don't want anything different, you know. Um, and uh, I've got my, my kids and my partner and... I guess if I had to, like, my advice would be, like, keep it small. Keep, stay stay in the basement. You know, like, the very first big chunk of money we got, we went to a big studio to make a record. And that record sounds good. 
But I kind of wish we just made another homemade record. I think if we'd have kept it there, everything would have been just fine. You know? But I mean, those weren't my decisions, right? I'm, I get swept up in things. I don't know. My advice would have been maybe just like, do more sit-ups. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of laughs with Jose. Uh, that was Smokies and Cannonballs from 2022's Automoto album by By Divine Right. And earlier in the uh, conversation, we had the song Body Shoes, which was the embryonic 1989 track from Jose and considered the first By Divine Right track. So great conversation once again. Uh, really appreciate all of the uh, uh, kind words about the inbreds and our history and things we've done. Uh, but then also going into things from uh, today and doing the music festival. So as always, make sure you check out our show notes to learn a bit more about where uh, you can find both the uh, all the releases that Jose and By Divine Right have done over the years. In addition to shows, there's definitely some things coming up this summer. So make sure you check out By Divine Right uh, out there in the uh, Canadian rock and roll landscape. And uh, another great conversation here in number 10 on... Salad days. Thanks for uh, if you've been listening since the beginning. Thank you, and if you've just checked this one out, please feel free to go back and check out some more. Thank you, Jose. Woo! If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe, like, and tell all your best music-loving friends about it. Today's episode was brought to you by Zunior.com and me, Lemonade Dave. I've done a lot of things in music over the years, but these days, I mostly make bottled lemonade by hand in Prince Edward County. I'm going to crack a cold one right now. But if you're ever in PEC, be sure to ask for it by name and tell them Dave sent you. Dave had it made Sitting pretty in the shade Heaven gave him lemons And he squeezed it into lemonade Drink without the trouble Of drinking drinks and shots and doubles He said, hark, I'll make it sparkle And he added stuff to make it bubble Lemonade day Like the sparkling lemonade If it's hot, I'll get a bottle it's not all. Get a bottle, that is. <laughs>